take that up. But we are over in 1 Corinthians 5. And this is a letter from one of the very early letters of the New Testament. And it shows it's sort of a very raw letter. Uh, it's not the sort of polished thing you might expect to find in a very you know, holy book. It's a letter from a pastor who went into a, a very pagan, worldly Greek uh, city, or well, you know, uh, culturally Greek, but it's in the pro- it's a Roman province of Corinth. It was a seaport, remember, and nothing good happens near airports and seaports, right? Where all the guys on business trips drop in, sin a whole bunch, fly home. Uh, that's what's going on in Corinth. They had temples to foreign gods who they worshipped through a lot of sexuality, uh, sexual behavior. They they had uh, a lot of drunkenness, a lot of steals, uh, steals, a lot of metalwork no i mean thievery a lot of uh, also political and social warfare that would just go on between individuals uh and and in, into the city went paul and he preached the gospel and founded a church and it's in the the few years after that that he's then going to other areas and visiting the other churches he's planted and he gets a letter of a list of questions from the church uh, so it's good to have Q&As with pastors. And then he also had complaints given to him about the church. So it's also good to bring your concerns to pastors. And then together, in answering the questions and speaking to the concerns, he wrote it all in the letter we have called First Corinthians and sent it back to them. And it just covers, as we've been seeing, some horrendous themes that no pastor wants to have to talk about and no pastor wants to have to preach about. And uh, I can see now why pastors choose to just just pick verses at random to preach through because when you preach through books like we do by conviction that this is the word of God in context, in order, is best to preach, you get to chapters like chapter 5. And we covered this last week that, you know, this is, this is not one of the stories they teach you in Sunday school. This is in the Bible. It's, it's, they don't print these out to do coloring in pages in the kids' books, do they? This chapter 5. No, this was a story where, uh, where a man in the Corinthian church, a, a member, he's taking communion, he's got some kind of leadership, influence in the church, and he is living with and in a sexual relationship with the woman that used to be married to his father, his current stepmother. That's the situation, that's the relationship. Paul says, even for the pagans, you are committing an atrocity, this man. And so he, he advised the church to kick him out. Uh, there needs to be no more grace, so-called. There needs to be no more pretending that you're too loving to deal with sin. He actually says, so very importantly in chapter, in chapter 5 or 6, which we looked at last week, he said that the local church is to be a holy group of people. And therefore, just like in the Old Testament, when, when, when the, the people of God had to cast out all the, the leaven of their community, that was symbolizing sin, and we'll look at that later, so also the church needs to get rid of unrepentant sinners. Now, don't, don't think that every one of us tonight, we are all sinners, we are all falling far short of the standard of God, imperfection. We know that. But man, if you're a Christian who's trusted in Jesus and you're repenting and you're, you're, you're coming to a, an awareness about your, the sin you're living in and you're changing and you read the word of God and you realize I'm wrong about something and so you do the difficult work of confession and repenting and other Christians come and pull you up and talk to you and you make changes, that's the normal ebb and flow of the Christian life. Imperfection is the ordinary as long as there is repentance. But in Corinth, there was unrepentance, and it was tolerated, and it was celebrated. They, they didn't do anything about this man because he was influential, probably uh, politically important in the city. So they did nothing. Here he is. And so we get to chapter 5, verse 7, 
And we're going to read on until the end of the chapter in verse 13 and finish up this, uh, this chapter. So Paul says, And the Lord, through Paul, writing by his Holy Spirit, without error, perfectly and authoritatively, says, Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival. Not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers and idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, so purge the evil person from among you. May God bless us as we seek to understand and apply and live under this, this good, perfect word that he's given to us. So we're going to see here how, how Paul talks about this Passover ceremony or festival. And we're going to look at that and how it applies to really the whole Christian life being a lifestyle of the Passover. And then we're going to see what church holiness and what church discipline is and is not. Uh, and, and clear up some uh, miscommunications or some possible things, that, some very evident things that were misunderstood in Paul's letter when he wrote to them. So first of all, go and look in verse 7, in verse 7, we see <clears throat> that Paul, calls, Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The Passover, as we said last week, was a, a celebration that the Jews would do every year. It was the very first celebratory festival that they, were, uh, that they had in their calendar because it marked the, the, the freedom and the salvation, redemption, of the Jewish people out of Egypt's slavery. That night when God sent his, his spirit of death to destroy all the firstborn sons in every household, anywhere in Egypt, except for those, whether they were Egyptian or Jewish, anybody who had obeyed the Lord and taken a lamb and slit its throat and cooked it up and had a meal with the family and taken the blood of the lamb and painted it over the doorposts, which sounds ridiculous. Uh, but if you do that, God said, everyone in that household will be safe. The, the death, the plague will pass over you in mercy because the lamb, the Passover lamb, died in your place. And so what we realize is that this was a pointing forward to Jesus Christ, who Paul says, who John the Baptist says, the lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that lamb that was uh, uh, in, in cultic ritual in the Jewish system uh, designed 1,500 years before. So here's, here's where we find ourselves. We, you and I, are Christians. We are, we are the, the, the fulfillment of all that the Jews were meant to be. We are the people of God, purified, saved from sin, living with God as our King in Jesus Christ, under his word, in community, among all the nations. Well, uh, Paul says here that Christ, our, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Meaning, all those Christians who, who find themselves under the doorpost of Jesus Christ, 
under the blood of our perfect lamb killed for our sins, Jesus, he died so that we can live. We need to then see ourselves as those in that household of Jesus Christ under his blood. But the whole point is that that act is not just something to be remembered. It's not only that Jesus died, punch the ticket, be thankful you're going to heaven, and then live however you want. Paul's whole point here is that in the Passover celebration, the Jews did not just eat the meal and paint the blood. Year after year, when they didn't have to put the blood over their doorpost anymore, because now they're out of Egypt, it would be, they, would, they would have the celebration, and then they would have 14 days of a festival where all of the leaven, you remember we were talking this, about this last week, the, 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 the yeast-eating part of the, the former dough. We, we spoke, I'll quickly recap for all those who aren't Amish and don't make your own bread. Uh, uh, you, what they would do, they make bread, and then they, they toast it or they you know, bake it, and they keep some of the old dough in a little container to sort of fester and, and get gaseous. And then the next day when they make new dough, they put some of the old leaven that old festering bread into the new dough and it's just a little pinch and it goes in and they leave it there and it actually is a living thing. It, it grows throughout it and it takes over the whole lump so that by the morning when you're ready to bake your bread again, it is in, it, the whole thing has puffed up and grown bigger because it's, it, the whole thing has been leavened even though you put in a tiny amount. And God said, and it seems quite strange to us why God would do this or maybe it was strange for them. God commanded the Jews in the Passover celebration, they would have the meal, and then for the days afterwards in the festival, the celebration, no leaven anywhere in the house. None. You have to throw all of it out, no unleavened bread, starting from scratch. And there's a few things going on there. Leaven came to symbolize their old way of living. Leaven is the leftovers of the old dough. And so leaven for us is the leftovers of our old life. You need to leave that entirely behind. Don't don't try and worship Jesus on Sundays, pay your tithes, but then with the rest of your life, sort of keep elements of your old living, the, the partying, the drinking, how you spend your money, who you relate with, how you live sexually. That can't translate over because like bread, you can't just keep sin in one corner. It demands authority and mastery and it will take over your whole life and then the whole thing needs to be cut out of the church, left on your own. But also, one of the things that I, I discovered in my research about leaven in the past couple of weeks, it's fun researching Bible passages, looking up food, getting hungry. And, and what I found out was that the people who first discovered and started utilizing leaven to make puffy bread was the Egyptians. So in the Jewish mind, what God is telling them is, leave Egypt behind. Celebrate that, that you are free from Egypt. Don't leave in your mindset, we're, we're free and he's, he's serving the Lord, but man, Egypt had some pluses. I know we got whipped and killed all the time and we were unfed and all of that, but man, there were some perks. They had some good things going on in Egypt. That's how we are when you and I try and live for Jesus, but just keep those few cavities of our life that are still devoted to our old way of living. Paul then therefore says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Verse 8, let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil. That's your old life. Before Jesus, all of it was evil. Malice is just another word for evil. Loads of evil. 
evil squared. That was your life, and it's all gone. None of it is fitting to come into the new life with Jesus Christ. He has been sacrificed. Let us celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So, of course, he's, he's not simply saying uh, that, that uh, he, he's elevating it all back. He's not simply saying we, we need to cut out sourdoughs and don't have any yeast. And, you know, when, he's not applying back onto us those Old Testament sacrificial uh, dietary laws. We, we don't, Christians eat whatever you want, especially bacon and sourdough. But what he is saying is that all of that, which they did back then, has a fulfillment in us in a true way. We are cutting out of our life malice and envy and evil and sin and iniquity and worldliness because our lamb is dead and has raised. Uh, the blood has been spilled. We are saved and therefore it has an ethical moral, lifestyle implication. So here's, that is Paul's indictment. That's his imagery and his application. He says, of course, with the unleavened bread, which, remember, unleavened bread is symbolizing pure living. So he's saying, let us celebrate the Passover lifestyle with unleavened bread or a life of, of purity, which has in it sincerity and truth. Sincerity and truth. It's so easy to try and give a show or live a life that impresses other people that is pure and, and holy and Sabbath-keeping and Christian and you don't say these words and you dress a certain way or, or whatever it is, depending on whatever subculture or culture you find yourself in. It's so easy to give a picture of holiness while on the inside being leavened, being sinful, being secretly harboring iniquity. It's also so easy to, to, to seek after holiness with a, with a veneer of, of lies. You know, we, we, try, we do this as Christians. We, just, we, we elevate niceness as the, the highest priority, and therefore we don't speak the truth to each other. We call it grace. We call it love. We call it being kind. We're actually being, being li uh, liars towards one another. Now we, 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 because this applies to individuals, sincerity and truth, genuine holiness, truth speaking. But this is in the context of the community of the church. We together need to be sincere. We together need to be truthful. So, so, so often, especially in talking about church discipline, people, people ask, like, how do I say this? I know my friend's in sin. How do I say it without them disliking me? And that's not sincere. I don't know if you can say it without them disliking you. You're bringing up one of their pet sins. They like it. That's why they're doing it. You're probably going to be disliked. Welcome to the club of Jesus. Uh, yeah, and people say, well, how do I say it in such a way that I don't seem like the bad guy? That's not sincere. It is not truthful. It's underhanded. It's, it's, it, it, has, it has cowardly connotations. So we do need to be a community that just sort of, you know, we're not all polished. It's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be beautiful at every single juncture. We're just low-level, earthly Christians who speak the ugly truth to one another, pray for each other, try and repent when sin is brought up against us, and just live in sincerity and truth. Will we look like the most polished, angelic, perfect, ideal community on earth? I hope not. That will never be a sincere people. Will we be those people, though, who, who value sincerity and truth in our congregation and in our personal lives? I believe by the Spirit we can be. So, he then moves on and says, or well, just before this actually, I want to go back. Look at what he says in verse 8, the first half. 
I love this. This this goes against so much, especially so much thinking about this topic, repentance of sin, especially sexual sin. Paul says, let us therefore celebrate the festival. How many Christians, if you asked to sort of give a picture of the Christian life, how many would say, you know what it's like? It's like a festival. In our, especially young adults, you think festival, you think Blues Fest, Byron Bay, loads of illegal things and people doing all sorts of breaking of the Ten Commandments. That's what we think. We think festivals, parties, lots of fun and excitement. What we should think is Christianity, boredom, quiet, hands in lap, where we're sort of, you know, uh, maybe you grew up in Catholic school and you think living the Christian life, it's got to be some kind of stringent rules and lack of happiness. So friends, Paul is looking here in his mind's eye. He sees a dead lamb. He's remembering all of the years that he celebrated the Passover. He remembered all these years I misunderstood what it was. But now in Christ I see that one has died that I can go free. There is bloodshed that you can be forgiven. That calls for celebration. The whole of the Christian life is not always going to be happiness. There will be tears and weeping and repentance and difficulty. But in the whole arch of things, a celebration in what Jesus has done. And we sort of see these two things in the Christian life that I want to sort of leave with you, these two sides of the coin of the Christian life. We have the the celebration and the sanctification, just like the Jews. They celebrated the festival and cut out the leaven. So we, we, we celebrate that we are free from sin and death and hell. And we are sanctified from sin, which brings death and hell. We are feasting in worship to God who saved us. And we are fleeing from immorality, which he has saved us from. We're praising God for our rescue from the slavery of sin. And we're pursuing holiness so that we're not enslaved to sin again. We're partying in the joy of eternal life. And we are purging ourselves of evil pleasures which marked our old life. We are, as the reformers said in their catechisms, they say, what is sanctification? What are the two parts of sanctification? They would say, living to righteousness and dying to sin. Mortification and vivification. Living to righteousness, dying to sin. The Christian life is a celebration. No more gloominess. Um, uh, no, more, no more fake happiness either, but no more thinking of Christianity as the giving up of fun, the giving up of joy, and instead we'll just go to heaven where all the nuns are. No, we are joyful. Our whole life is a life of celebration for Jesus. But also, are you sin-filled? Gloominess and, and, a, and a lack of apprehending the promises of God for us is one sin, but so is having celebration and taking all of the blessings of God while refusing to obey his commands of repentance. Celebrate and repent. This is the double call to the Christian life. And so Paul then goes on to say in verse 9, he then sort of, he's, he's sort of given that, that, that real umbrella of the Christian life, but then he, he goes on to correct some misunderstandings he had. He says in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter, not to associate with sexual immoral people, and and there's going to be a misunderstanding he's fixing up. The thing is, 1 Corinthians is not the 1 Corinthian letter. We spoke about this in our very first introductory sermon. It's actually what what the historians call Corinthian letter A. 
which was a lost letter. We don't have it. Maybe Paul just blew off his head and just yelled through his pen at the Corinthians. Maybe he said some things that were a little bit off. Maybe he just wrote and everything was good and fine. However, there was evidently some parts of it which were too easily misunderstood. It was not written under the authority and uh, authorship of the Holy Spirit. It was not an inspired text. We don't get it in the Bible. It's not for us. So he wrote to them. This is the second letter. 2 Corinthians is the third letter. And uh, he had obviously already spoken about sexual immorality in general. And he said to them, look at verse 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate, that is, intermingle, with sexually immoral people. And, and what was evident is that they've taken that and just made a blanket statement, not applying it to any of their friends, but applying it to everybody they wanted to avoid anyway on the outside of church. So, so they're, they're just living their life. Maybe it's their family, their household members, their, their workmates, their colleagues, everyone. They're just trying to avoid all sexually immoral people. Now, I think if I did a poll, they'd put your hands up if you think any of your friends are not entirely sexually in, uh, pure who, who are not Christians. You're either naive or your hand's shooting up quicker. I'm not going to do it. Don't put your hand up. But, but that's the reality. All of us, all of our friends, all of us before Jesus were sexually immoral. So Paul makes the point. He says, if I meant that, you would have had to literally go out of the world. So he needs to correct some things. And he does. He, he says then that, uh, that, and we'll sort of look at what the specifics of, of these words mean. <laughs> look at verse 11. He says, but now, well, let me correct, let me uh, improve upon what I said last time. Now I'm writing to you not to associate or intermingle with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality, greed, is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat such a one. So the point, this is we need to make this very clear. Church discipline is not checking people's purity cards and whether they're still wearing their purity ring that they got in grade 11 at high school, whether they're still wearing that on the way in, and if not, they're out because we don't have sinners in this church, just the frozen chosen, that's it. No, 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 they can come in. We want them in. In fact, let me take this opportunity. Invite your sinful friends. Don't call them that, just call them friends. But bring them in that they might hear the soul-saving gospel of Jesus. They, they need to come and hear. Paul's saying, don't cut them out of your life. Don't cut them out of the church doors. Let them in, but don't call them Christians. And, and if somebody has become a Christian, as far as we can tell, then every single thing, and I want us all to hear this, if you identify as a Christian, every single thing you do is done under the banner of Jesus approves of this. Your business practices, your buying habits, your friendships, your language, it's all being done under the banner to the world saying Jesus is okay with this. If you've been baptized, Paul's mindset is you carry your baptism around with you, like, like a hat or a crown or a robe or, or a, a badge of some kind. If you are baptized, you're in Jesus. You need to be aware of that. There's no part of your life that he doesn't govern. He died for it all. He didn't give 50% of his lifeblood for you. He didn't half die and then quickly take his breath back and hop off the cross. He gave his whole life to purchase your whole life. And so, if you're a Christian, every part of your 
decision-making, your lifestyle, your enactment needs to be done in the submission to Jesus Christ. Because if it's not, it's saying something very powerfully wrong about Jesus, which is that he tolerates sin. We often like to say, well, what it is, is it's grace. It's, it's, people love this phrase, Jesus you know, meets us where we are. And Jesus loves me exactly as I am. And, and what people think is that that's an excuse to, to stay as I am. But the, the often quoted phrase is, is true, that, that Jesus loves you as you are. He meets you as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you as you are. You're in slavery. You're under Egypt. You're going to death. He loves you. He brings you out of that and changes you. And we're going to see this in the next few weeks as well in chapter 6. But an unchanged Christian life testifies to a powerless Jesus. We cannot tolerate that. So look again to verse 11, this list of sins. This is pretty frequent in the New Testament. It's called a vice list. This is a list of a whole bunch of sins. This one is, seems pretty specific to the Corinthians. It says sexual immorality, which he's dealing with in chapter 5, 6, and 7. It talks about greed, which he deals with uh, later on in giving and those who are um, uh, keeping for themselves all of the, the food and the communion table and uh, also, uh, later on in other chapters, he's going to speak about uh, idolatry, which he speaks of in the later chapters when those who are eating idolatrous food in temples. He's going to speak about, uh, also here he mentions uh, revilers or drunkards and in the communion, people getting drunk in church. He's going to talk about that. Uh, swindlers, those who are uh, 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 stealing really money from other people because they're besting them in, in, uh, in, in deals. So he, this is a specific list, specific for the Corinthians, but we need to be able to look at this and take out application for ourselves. He says, of course, sexual immorality. This is, as we've said last week, everything other than sex with a wife or a husband. One wife, one husband, male and female, female and male. That's the only combination that God approves of and blesses. Every kind of sexual activity, thought, speech, picture, outside of that is sexual immorality. And that is the, the sort of thing that needs to be addressed as publicly as it is known. This guy had been sinning and the whole church knew it. The whole city knew about it. He's living with his stepmother. And therefore, the whole city needed to see this church discipline at, at play when they cut him out saying to the whole city, he is not one of Jesus' followers. We don't live like that. Also says here, uh, greed. Uh, there are in, uh, lawsuits in chapter 6 going on between Christians where they're just trying to drain each other's bank accounts dry for themselves, uh, which we're going to look at next week. But, but this is a, the, the word here really uh, 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 corresponds to any kind of lifestyle, living, that seeks to gain through, through their own self-seeking ambition, gain riches from other people. Uh, so it can be being stingy with, with brothers and sisters. It can be, I, I love this story from Martin Luther. He, he was talking once to somebody in his congregation who was quite a businessman, and he had bought a house for about 50 you know, units of measurement back in the Reformation day. And, and uh, in, in a short time, he sort of turned it over and he was going to sell it to somebody for 450. 
but nine times what he had bought it for. And, and really, even with inflation, it was not worth that much. But he was good at pushing people, and he was going to drain 450 bucks out of somebody. Martin Luther said to him, you sell it for a reasonable price, or you're under church discipline, and you're out. You don't do that. That's not a, a Christian way of living, right? Luther's style, I love it. So the guy sold it for 150, which is a lot more reasonable. And we sort of look at that and go, that's, that's not bad. That's just, that's smart money. But friends, we're actually, as Christians, we have to be honest and sincere in our selling, in our buying, in our dealings with each other. When, when there are Christians who, who are so-called, who come into churches, start, start complaining to all different groups and about their needs, and, and then you realize, I've, I've seen this before, and then you realize that he's draining money, getting donations from like 20 different families. He's living like a king. That guy gets chopped out. He's not living like Jesus, who is generous, who is giving, who was sacrificial. Or we see, you know, or apply that to the guy who always leaves his wallet at home and you're always paying when you go out for after church dinners. That guy, right here, cut him out. He gets left, he doesn't get a ride home. He does not, yeah. So stinginess, bam, worth addressing. Kind of funny. Uh, so, but also he's going to talk here about idolatry. This is serious. This, of course, in the Corinthian day, this was that they were bending down and they were worshipping other idols. This is New Age Christianity, right? If you uh, in any way uh, are involved in New Age psychology or New Age um, uh, believing with, with, with the palm reading and the, the chakras and all of that, and there's so many Christians, especially new Christians who do that, Paul says that that is idolatry. It's an engaging in foreign forbidden worship and spirituality. Jesus demands that it be chopped out, and if people don't want to lose that, then they are chopped out of the church. He also speaks of the reviler. The reviler is somebody who is, to put it simply, critical and divisive. This is somebody who just has no problem with handing out their insults, always, of course, in a polite Christian way. You know, there's constantly stirring up division amongst the brothers. They they have criticisms. They have a rebellious heart that loves pulling people apart. They are the, the people who complain and slander and gossip, or, or they always share their concerns about people. They're not going to bring it up with them, but they'll tell everybody else their concerns about them, Compl- uh, you know, claiming that they're following 1 Corinthians 5. These people are spoken of in Proverbs chapter 6, in God's top seven hated sins. The, brother, the person who stirs up conflict between the brothers, God detests. God hates that person. And any church that finds in, in their numbers somebody doing that, which there would have been, there was divisions in the Corinthian church, if they're not willing to repent of it, they are also removed. I don't know how many people are going to be left after this list in the Corinthian church. Just one or two people, but small and pure is better than chunky and unholy. So then says drunkards, and this is, of course, Christians, this is what it sounds like. Those who engage in giving over to alcohol in a way that loses your inhibitions, in a way that, that now, now the Bible tells us alcohol is good, it's from God, it makes the heart happy. That's fine, but what it's talking about is, is, a, is drunkenness, a, a taking of alcohol to excess, where you lose control of yourself, where you're, you're speaking in ways you shouldn't be, where your self-control is down and temptation comes a lot more easily. That kind of drunkenness or, 
or, or even the depressed and addicted guy who, who just doesn't go to work because he's got an alcohol problem. That is sin, of course. He'll claim addiction and he'll claim all sorts of childhood problems, but friends, we address it as it is. If he's unwilling to repent of that, it comes to church discipline. So, so we see here that Paul is serious about sin in the church in all these ways and more because we are representing and living for Jesus. What we do and don't do reflects on Jesus. So he says in verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. He says in verse 11, don't even eat with that person. Like, don't be hospitable. Don't bring them in and help them out. They need to be removed in a way that hurts so that they can come to repentance. Back in verse 5, he says, deliver these people to Satan. Up in verse 2, he said, let him who has done this be removed from among you. This is all harsh language because harsh sins have harsh consequences. Let's just close up here on, on really defining what church, uh, 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 some, some other rules for balance here in church discipline. Look back at verse 9. We touched this, and of course, also in verse 10. The misunderstanding was they thought Paul was saying, don't interact with any sexual immoral people. Of course, that can't be the meaning because church discipline is supposed to be about making holiness here so that they can come and see a holy bride of Christ. But he also says, uh, even those who are greedy, swindlers, idolaters, right, the, the same list he gives about Christians, says those people, if you're going to avoid them, you need to leave the world. That's a bad thing. Some Christians hear that and they go, yes, Let's join a monastery, go on a young adult's trip to a long, faraway way for a year and not interact with the world. We're just going to cut off everybody, be a holy club. No, Paul sees that as that monastic lifestyle as retreatism. That's, that's fearing sin more than our savior and saying, I, I can't engage in with the sinful world without falling myself into sin and destruction. I'll, I'll avoid it. Well, friends, Paul doesn't want us to engage in their sin. He doesn't want us to, to compromise and live like them. He wants us to remain holy and engage them as our mission field. Your friends, your family, your workplace are your mission fields if they are outside of Christ. I also just see here, I want to finish up with uh, four rules for balance here. The balance comes because, because this can be so misapplied or, or people can be critical about sin in the church or judgmental in a way that is actually unhelpful. So we need to check our motivation. So number one, our motivation should be the winning of brothers and sisters back to the Lord Jesus Christ. We looked at this in Matthew 18. And Jesus said, you need to go and talk to your friends who are sinning. Talk to them about their sin. Bring them to repentance. Because when that happens, you've won a brother. You've won a sister back. The, the, the proverb tells us, wise is he that winneth souls. Proverbs 24 tells us that, that, that we should go after those who are stumbling along to death. If you see your friend driving towards a cliff, you rebuke them in their sin to bring them back. You love them. So our motivation needs to be winning, needs to be unity, needs to be help and edification. That's always our motivation. Second of all, one of the rules that really helps bring balance here is that this is a whole body activity. There's no such thing as obeying 1 Corinthians 5 or Matthew 18 
if you're not involved in a local church. Because all of the commands that Jesus gives is between uh, brothers and sisters and then take it to the church and, and that being the leadership and then the whole body together is making this voted statement about things. So, so it's not as if we've selected a couple of real holy people and they're the sin police and, and they're sort of like the, the hall monitors who are checking your cards and going through your, your, your internet history and looking at your messages and making sure you're all up to scratch. It's, it's not as if there are the untouchables, the unquestionables who keep everyone else under wraps. It's that we're a whole body, like a, like a human body, and each of the organs have parts to play in looking after the other. That's how we ought to think of it. It means that we are... In a, this, this whole process happens in a local church under duly ordained leaders according to the word of God, by the spirit of God, together. That is the right context for it. And so we see that back in verse 4 and 5. He's saying this whole thing happens when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. The power of the Lord Jesus is with you. That's the context. We also find here that what the third uh, rule or element that will help keep things in balance is that you monitor yourself first. We need to keep an eye on ourselves first. No, not thinking that because you've got a couple of, couple of on the, on the, hitting the nail on the head rebukes lately. I, I told him about his problem. I said to him that he was mistreating his wife. Both of them repented. I've got a, I'm coming on a hat trick. Who else do I need to hit? That's not the idea. You, you first need to be inwardly checking, self-assessing, putting sin to death so that it's not growing, especially pride. All of us need to be checking. Like Jesus says, look for the two by four in your own face before you look at the little speck of dust in another guy's eye. Some of us could build forts with the amount of wood in our eyes while we blame others for their dust. Friends, look inwardly first. If sin is serious enough to bring up with others, if sin in Paul's mind is serious enough to cut people out of church, then it is serious enough to cut out of our own life personally individually, through prayer and word, primarily. And then also, lastly, it's a celebration. Is this mindset coming not from a, a desire, a striving to perform, obey, in order to win the, the salvation of Jesus, in order to earn for yourself forgiveness, you, or in another mindset, you, you're laboring to put out sin because you're just so filthy and pathetic, and if you can be sad enough and depressed enough and self-loathing enough, then, then Jesus will feel pity and he'll kind of like you. No, friends, our repentance and our engaging our brothers and sisters around repentance is joy-filled, celebratory because of what Jesus has done on the cross for us. Saying, brother, you don't need to live this lifestyle. Our Passover lamb has been killed. Live a joyous life outside of this sin. Sister, stop walking this life that will harm you and hurt you and do you no good. Jesus has died. You can live righteously and he commands that you do. Our whole mindset and tone needs to be one of celebration because Jesus, our Passover lamb, has been slain. And friends, he rose victoriously over death. Death could not hold him. Sin cannot hold us if we walk by the Spirit. 
Some of us here need to start actually with repenting at the first place. If you're not a Christian, you don't know Jesus as your Lord. The Word is not your sustenance. You're not living according to His lifestyle. You don't know what this joy of eternal life is. You need to turn away from your sin. Give it to Jesus. Trust Him with your future. And what other sacrifices you need to make, make them. Trust that Jesus will help you through that. But believe in His death in your place. Believe in His resurrection as promising and securing you eternal life and you will be saved today. Let's pray. God, in this world, sin is a reality that ruins families, destroys churches, wrecks lives, and most of all, it offends you and earns your judgment, your condemnation, and your wrath. God, we thank you that you've provided from heaven that faultless, perfect, unblemished lamb who with no sin of his own could take our sin to the cross and die. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that because of his death, we can live. Because of his obedience, we can learn to obey. Because of his sending the Holy Spirit, we can walk in true power over sin. Lord, because of your grace, we can be saved and forgiven. Pray that the joy of Jesus' salvation would fill us I pray that obedience to your word would define us. And I pray, Lord, that many souls would join us in believing in Jesus. He would use us as being productive on your mission, saving souls and seeing your church built and flourishing. We pray these things, Lord, in your son's holy and precious name. And everybody said, amen.